Hi, it's time for another edition of the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. TheGrio.com, Time Magazine, The Associated Press, AudiophileMagazine.com, The Humanist Magazine, and The New York Times. There are several readings about religion in today's program, but we're going to start off with a reading about soccer from TheGrio.com. Next on today's program is a story from TheGrio.com. It was published March 12, 2022. The title is Major League Soccer Strikes Historic $25 Million Deal with Black-Owned Banks. It was written by The Grio staff. The subtitle is Deal is part of MLS's effort to help close the black-white economic gap. A major sports league has announced it will borrow $25 million from black-owned banks to help close the black-white economic gap in what it calls an historic agreement. Major League Soccer said the partnership, facilitated with the National Black Bank Foundation, marks the first time any sports league has partnered exclusively with black-owned banks in a major commercial transaction. As a league, we continue to increase our initiatives in support of racial justice, MLS Commissioner Don Garber said in a news release announcing the partnership. In order to make a genuine impact, economic justice must be part of the equation. This transaction with a syndicate of community-focused black banks is an important measure, and it is our hope this will raise awareness with the importance of black-owned banks and their impact on the economy, Garber added. The Federal Reserve notes that wealth inequality grew between 1989 and 2016, the latest year comparative statistics were available, with black and brown people struggling the most. We find that families who are thriving tend to be white, college-educated, and or older. We find that families who are struggling tend to have one or more of these characteristics, black or Hispanic, no four-year college degree, and or younger, according to a Federal Reserve report that examined what wealth inequality in America looks like. MLS's effort hopes to make a difference. The loan will allow black-owned banks to gain additional capital through interest and fees. The banks can then use that extra money to lend to small businesses and make other loans in the communities they serve. The Federal Reserve also said that black households tend to be unbanked or underbanked, more than any other demographic group. Unbanked means these black households don't have a bank account, and underbanked means they use alternative and more expensive financial services like payday lenders, the Federal Reserve Report noted. I brought MLS and the National Black Bank Foundation together because I saw an opportunity to create a partnership with the power to transform lives in black communities and change hearts and minds throughout our nation, Bernice A. King, King Center CEO and National Black Bank Foundation board member. This deal undoubtedly marks an important moment in the continuing struggle for civil rights in the United States, she added. That was the story. Major League Soccer strikes historic $25 million deal with black-owned banks. It was written by the Grio staff. It appeared March 12, 2022, at thegrio.com. The next story in today's program is also from the Grio.com website. The title of the article is Mary McLeod Bethune Statue to be Installed in U.S. Capitol Statuary Hall. 
It was published March 7, 2022 by the Griot staff. One of America's most prominent female figures in the movement for civil rights will be honored this month with a statue placed in the United States Capitol Building Statuary Hall. An 11-foot statue of Mary McLeod Bethune will soon be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection meant to represent the state of Florida. According to the Washington Post, Bethune will be the first black American to specifically represent any state among the collection of statues. Each state is given the opportunity to display two statues of prominent citizens in the hall, and Bethune's will replace one of Confederate General Edmund Kirby Smith, there since 1922. The statue, created by noted sculptor Nilda Comas, capital N-I-L-D-A, capital C-O-M-A-S, from the world's finest marble, according to the Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune Statuary Project, will feature at its base Bethune's quote, Invest in the human soul. Who knows, it may be a diamond in the rough. Bethune was considered one of the few African Americans who had access to the White House, particularly during the presidency of Franklin D. Roosevelt. She shared a special friendship with former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who would often greet her personally and escort her to speak with the president about the issues affecting African Americans. I discussed with him the problems of my people in many an off-the-record private talk held in the president's study in the White House, Bethune wrote in an article titled My Secret Talks with FDR, which was published in 1949 in Ebony Magazine as reprinted by The Post. I often expressed to him my impatience with the slowness of the democratic process. In her essay, Bethune wrote of telling the president of the refusal of many southern states to allocate funds from the National Youth Administration to help black youth. She noted that she caught his arm and clung to him, saying, The Negro people need all the strength that you can give, Mr. President, in opening up opportunities for them. She recalled that Roosevelt looked at her and said, Mrs. Bethune, I shall not fail you. The founder of what ultimately became Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona, Florida, Bethune was a prominent activist and educator. Her statue depicts her in a cap and gown to honor her in that role and as one of the first black women to found a university. Dr. Bethune was a visionary, an entrepreneur, a business executive, a friend and advisor to five U.S. presidents, including President Franklin D. Roosevelt, President Calvin Coolidge, President Herbert Hoover, and President Harry S. Truman. Bethune-Cookman University says on its website, she was close friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, who actually had her own guest room in Dr. Bethune's home. Per NBC News, Comus Bethune's statue was originally said to be placed among the collection last month. It gives her the distinction of being the first Latina artist with a sculpture in the National Statuary Hall. There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It is a close-up of the top of the statue. It is white marble and shows Dr. Bethune wearing a cap and gown and a string of pearls around her neck. The statue also has her smiling. The caption to this photograph reads, Nilda Comas's 11-foot-tall statue of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune will be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection where she will represent the state of Florida. That was the story Mary McLeod Bethune statue to be installed in U.S. Capitol Statuary Hall. It appeared at the griot.com website. It was written by the Griot staff and was published March 7th, 
2022. Next, we're going to have a couple of audiobook reviews from the audiophilemagazine.com website. The first audiobook review is titled Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness by Laura Coates, capital C-O-A-T-E-S, read by Laura Coates. It falls in the category of contemporary culture. It will take approximately eight and a half hours to read and was published in 2022. Laura Coates is author and narrator of this riveting audiobook about her time as a federal prosecutor. She aces both tasks. Coates, now a CNN legal analyst and radio show host, puts a lot of expression into her voice. The listener can hear irony, sarcasm, anger, and humor. Coates was one of the few black prosecutors in the Washington, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, where most of the defendants also were African-American. Her audiobook is a series of stories about what she saw and did, both professionally and personally, during her four-year stint. The stories make defendants, victims, and their loved ones three-dimensional, relatable characters. Coates never loses sight of the inequities of the system. Listeners will see them, too, through this excellent audiobook. That was a review of the book, Just Pursuit, subtitled A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness by Laura Coates. The book was read by Laura Coates, and this review appeared in the audiophilemagazine.com website, February of 2022. The next review I have from audiophilemagazine.com is of the audiobook titled One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race by John M. Perkins and Karen Waddles. Read by Calvin Robinson, it falls into the category of philosophy and religion and should take about 4.5 hours to read. It was originally published in 2018. Calvin Robinson narrates Reverend Perkins' final manifesto on race reconciliation with care and conviction, His delivery has a lingering effect as the author's words are built upon years of pain and struggle, comfort and victory. Robinson's grizzled voice and tone of longing, which capture Perkins' experience and hope for a peaceful world, will leave an impression not soon forgotten. Because there is work still to be done, the importance of this audiobook cannot be understated. Robinson's abilities as a narrator will help listeners identify their part in bringing people of all races together. This audiobook is an Audiophile Earphones Award winner. This review was originally published in May of 2018. That was the review of the audiobook One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race by John M. Perkins and Karen Waddles. Read by Calvin Johnson. That review appeared in the audiophilemagazine.com website. Next up is another story related to religion. The title is An Examination of Policy Views by Race and Religion by Walter W. Hill. It appeared in the Humanist Magazine in its winter 2022 edition. In spaces of non-theists, 
It is not unusual to hear a question along the lines of, does it make sense for black Americans to have separate spaces along with or even within organizations that are open to all? This question assumes, among other things, that across racial lines, non-theists reason and think similarly. Implicit in posing the question is the assumption that it is not a priori clear that that the answer to a fundamental question on religion should mean that there will be similar views over other questions. Is this implicit assumption consistent with responses from recent survey research? Public opinion polls focusing on the November 2020 election are now available to researchers. One of the more well-known of these is the continuing series of the American National Election Studies, ANES. The survey was created to research political behavior and contains a wide range of questions, including those dealing with religion, race, attitudes, and other issues. A preliminary version of the ANES survey was released in spring 2021. The ANES survey is large, with about 8,300 respondents, and it is primarily concerned with political behavior. But it does include questions about religion since religious identity is well known to be associated with partisan voting behavior. This article focuses on ANES because, in addition to its size, the survey was constructed as an equal probability sample. It is also widely available. There are numerous other surveys about American religious behavior, including Pew Research Center and Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI. Information from ANES corresponds with these frequently cited surveys. There have also been recent surveys specifically on the views of non-theists. The Secular Survey, available at secularsurvey.com, and Ryan Burge's findings in his book, The Nuns, Where They Come From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going, both present information on the views of non-theists. The first step is to check to see if the ANES responses regarding religious issues are similar to that of Pew. This is considered a test for validation of the ANES survey with respect to this variable. Let's consider the larger denominations. ANES shows three denominations which each represent over 20% of Americans. Within the ANES, Roman Catholics are around 20% of respondents, which is consistent with what is known from Pew. The percent of the population that is Catholic has remained relatively stable for decades, and that continues now after combining Hispanic and non-Hispanic believers. The responses from Protestants in ANES are a little low relative to conventional reasoning, but this is explained below. The combined values for atheists and agnostics are around 10%, which is consistent with Pew. We expect about another 10% not identifying with any religion. However, ANES responses in that category are a bit higher than in Pew's survey. The combination of these last three groups is conventionally referred to as nuns, those with no religious affiliation. Fortunately, ANES asked a follow-up question of those who described their religion as nothing in particular. Roughly one-third of those respondents identify as Christian. Those respondents likely correct for the apparent undercount of Protestants in ANES compared with Pew. With that correction, the percent of non-theists is in the lower 20s. This is consistent with Pew surveys. 
It is also a cautionary tale as a substantial number of those who do not identify with a specific denomination nevertheless self-identify as Christian. The remaining two-thirds of the nothing in particular are typically classified with atheists and agnostics. From a statistical standpoint, even as recently as two decades ago, the number of those identifying as non-theists were so small that it made sense for surveys of the electorate to exclude them. Although not the task of this article, it may be worth seeing if the subgroups are different. Combine atheists, agnostics, and those who say something else but who are non-theists in one group called nuns, spelled capital N-O-N-E-S. This group represents 21% of the respondents. Nuns are the second largest group behind all Protestants, slightly larger than Catholics. Black Views Now we turn to the concerns of the black electorate. Of the 8,200 responses to ANES, there are 726 who identify as black, non-Hispanic, and 271 who identify as several races. Looking only at the former, those who identify as black, there are 95 black respondents who are without a religion, 13% of black respondents, but a surprisingly small number who identify as both black and atheists. Why would this be? ANES has a question that asks how important religion is to the respondent. If we compare black and white respondents on this variable, it is clear that in the population as a whole, the typical black respondent in the entire survey sees religion as more important than the typical white respondent. For example, 26% of white people surveyed see religion as extremely important, whereas the figure for black people surveyed is 44%. It is apparent that black respondents in general are in a community that is more religious and hence a person identifying as an atheist makes themselves much more of an outsider than in the white community. It is likely that the respondent's community will influence the behavior of the typical black person identifying as a nun. There are further broad influences from historical circumstances for members of the black community because of segregation, redlining, and employment discrimination, for example, which could easily affect people's worldview as well as attitudes on policy issues. To return to our original question, to what extent does the ANES identify different attitudes across race? It is not surprising to find similarity regarding questions of religion since nuns among both black and white communities might be expected to have similar outlooks. On the other hand, we very clearly see that the two communities are in some sense different just in terms of the religiosity of the communities. We should not be surprised if other characteristics are different as well. We might expect there are different characteristics in black spaces, white spaces, and mixed spaces. Direct Comparison Given that both white and black nuns have similar views on religion, we expect some similarity in positions across race on issues that might have some bearing on science or First Amendment rights. These ideas would likely be a part of the belief structure of nuns regardless of the racial identity. On the other hand, there is no guarantee that we should expect a similar response across other issues. The ANES shows us that there is no guarantee that responses will be similar across other issues. One ANES question asks about the desire to achieve diversity. 
white respondents are more optimistic about diversification. Another question asked about approval of the Affordable Care Act, often referred to as Obamacare. We see that black nuns are more likely than white nuns to approve the act, although clear majorities of both approve. Both black and white nuns are concerned with climate change, but whites are more likely to think the issue is more important. The views do differ on this issue, although clear majorities of both groups see climate change as a factor affecting severe weather and temperatures. However, on many other social issues, there are sharp differences in attitudes between black nuns and white nuns. To give just one example, with respect to the death penalty, black nuns are much more likely to oppose the death penalty when compared with their white counterparts. The difference is statistically significant. This response likely reflects attitudes similar to that in the general population rather than ideas associated with religion since the difference appears on numerous other policy issues. Conclusion ANES survey focusing on political views in America in the autumn of 2020 has numerous variables that can be used to look at attitudes. Among those we identify as nuns, we ask if there are differences in the opinions in black respondents and white respondents. Being a nun would indicate a set of beliefs on some questions as they are in a single group based at least in part on their view on a religion. But similar views on that one question do not imply similar positions across race on other issues. There are multiple communities and spaces in the country. Some views will reflect these different spaces. From the survey, we see that there are questions in which black nuns and white nuns have similar beliefs. There are numerous questions in which black nuns and white nuns, on average, hold different beliefs. This could well be related to differences in views within various communities, as well as the legacy of different historical circumstances. Spaces for these different communities should be encouraged to flourish. There are four graphs that go along with this article. The first is titled, Does Increasing Diversity Make the United States a Better or Worse Place to Live? The title of the second graph is, Do You Approve or Disapprove of the Affordable Care Act? The third graph is titled, How Much is Climate Change Affecting Severe Weather Slash Temperatures in the United States? And the final graph is titled, Do you favor or oppose the death penalty? This article was written by Walter W. Hill, who is a professor of political science at St. Mary's College of Maryland. He has a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics and a Ph.D. in Political Science from MIT. That was the article, An Examination of Policy Views by Race and Religion by Walter W. Hill, It appeared in the winter 2022 edition of The Humanist magazine. Next on the African American Hour is a story titled, What's Behind Federal Anti-Lynching Legislation? It's from the Associated Press's AP.com website. It was written by Corey Williams and Gary Fields and appeared March 15, 2022. President Joe Biden is expected to sign into law the first bill that specifies lynching as a federal hate crime. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which Congress passed on March 7th, 
enables the prosecution of crimes as lynchings if they are done during a hate crime in which the victim is injured or slain. A 2020 version of the bill set the maximum sentence as 10 years. The one Biden will sign comes with 30 years in prison and fines for anyone conspiring to commit an act of lynching that causes death or injury. The House approved the bill 422 to 3 with eight members not voting. The Senate passed the bill by unanimous consent. Illinois Democrat Representative Bobby Rush introduced this version in January 2021. He had introduced a bill as well in January 2019, and the House passed the bill 410 to 4, but that one stalled in the Senate. Lynching has always been a terrorist weapon in the hands of racists in the history of our nation, Rush said in an interview earlier this year. Just as important, he added, is that it remains so, a continuing weapon to promote a racialized terror. Here's a deeper look at the bill. Why does it matter? In 2015, the Equal Justice Initiative issued a report that detailed more than 4,400 documented racial terror lynchings of black people in America between 1877 and 1950. The Montgomery, Alabama-based nonprofit later reported that during the 12-year period of Reconstruction following the U.S. Civil War, at least 2,000 black men, women, and children were victims of lynchings. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act is clearly symbolic. In addition to having teeth, said Damon T. Hewitt, president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. No doubt about that, especially given the long road it's taken to have any federal anti-lynching legislation at all, Hewitt said, adding that the 30-year sentence is valuable because state charges and convictions are not guaranteed to stand. Even if they somehow are able to appeal the underlying sentence, you still have the federal charge. Acts of violence, including those where the race of the victim is a factor, are covered under state laws, according to Matthew Countryman, Afro-American and African Studies Chair at the University of Michigan. States, particularly in the South, have been unwilling to enforce these laws, Countryman said. In the 1960s, he said, the Justice Department began charging people with violations of civil rights. The anti-lynching law is another tool, Countryman said but you need a Justice Department that's willing to prosecute. What is lynching precisely? Lynching typically is understood to mean illegal mob actions that result in the slaying of a person based on race without due process for the victim. It became prevalent in the United States, especially in the nation's South, during Reconstruction and extended through the end of the 1800s and into the 1900s. Most often the victims are black, but people of Mexican and Asian descent also were victimized because of their skin color and ethnicity. For black Americans, lynching was meant to instill fear and terror and was used to keep them from voting, protesting, and pursuing education. Public lynchings were warnings to the black community, said Ursula Orr, capital E-R-S-U-L-A, capital O-R-E, associate professor of African and African American studies and rhetoric at Arizona State University and author of Lynching, Violence, Rhetoric, and American Identity. It was during Reconstruction that Americans' modern definition of lynching as an act of white solidarity and a racialized form of social control was forged, she said. Are there recent examples of lynching? Says Rush, 
the bill's sponsor, lynching is just covered in a different camouflage. The rope has been replaced with a shotgun and semi-automatic weapons. Some examples of what could fall under that definition. The 2020 slaying of Ahmad Arbery in Glenn County, Georgia, in which the 25-year-old was jogging when he was followed by three white men in pickup trucks and killed. A federal jury recently determined that incident was motivated by racial hatred. The 2015 fatal shootings of the black pastor and eight other black congregants at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, by Dylan Roof. In 1998, James Byrd Jr., a black man, was dragged to his death behind a pickup truck near Jasper, Texas, by white men. An avowed racist was executed in 2019 for Byrd's killing. John William King had a tattoo on his body of a black man with a noose around his neck hanging from a tree, according to authorities. Why pass a federal anti-lynching law right now? Congress first considered anti-lynching legislation more than 120 years ago. It had failed to pass anti-lynching legislation nearly 200 times, starting with a bill introduced in 1900 by North Carolina Representative George Henry White, the only black member of Congress at the time. In the early 1920s, the NAACP began its efforts to pass an anti-lynching bill. Federal hate crime legislation eventually was passed in the 1990s, decades after the civil rights movement. What the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act does is nationally acknowledge what black folks have always known, and that is that racialized violence is endemic to America's way of life, Orr said. Who was Emmett Till? Till, 14, was visiting relatives in Mississippi from his home in Chicago in 1955 when it was alleged that he whistled at a white woman. He was kidnapped, beaten, and shot in the head. A large metal fan also was tied to his neck with barbed wire. Till's body was then thrown into a river. His mother insisted on an open funeral casket to show the world what had been done to her child. Two white men, Roy Bryant and his half-brother J.W. Milam, capital M-I-L-A-M, were accused, but acquitted by a jury composed entirely of white men. Bryant and Milam later told a reporter that they kidnapped and killed Till. Countrymen called Till's mother's actions an extraordinary campaign of shame on the nation. There are four photographs that go along with this story. The first is a close-up picture of a headstone. The caption reads, In this May 4, 2005 file photo, Emmett Till's photo is seen on his grave marker in Alsip, Illinois. Legislation that would make lynching a federal hate crime in the United States is expected to be signed into law next week by President Joe Biden. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act was years in the making. The next photograph is a black and white picture of a woman standing over a casket and crying. She is supported by a man wearing a suit. There is a man with a clerical collar standing in the background and the casket is surrounded by flowers. The caption to this photograph reads, Mamie Till Mobley weeps at her son's funeral on September 6, 1955 in Chicago. The mother of Emmett Till insisted that her son's body be displayed in an open casket, forcing the nation to see the brutality directed at blacks in the South at the time. 
Legislation that would make lynching a federal hate crime in the United States is expected to be signed into law by President Joe Biden. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act was years in the making. The next picture that goes along with this story shows a person wearing a T-shirt that has printed on the front, Justice for Emmett Till. This person is holding a sign that says, 250,000 plus say justice for Emmett Till. The caption to this photograph reads, Deborah Watts, a cousin of Emmett Till, the black 14-year-old from Chicago who was abducted, tortured, and lynched after he allegedly whistled at a white woman in her family store in rural Mississippi, holds a poster and taped thumb drive that allegedly has almost 300,000 signatures on a petition seeking a renewed probe of the 1955 lynching in Jackson, Mississippi. Legislation that would make lynching a federal hate crime in the United States is expected to be signed into law by President Joe Biden. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act was years in the making. The final photograph that goes along with the story shows a man wearing a gray suit, and behind him is a picture of Emmett Till. The caption reads, Representative Bobby Rush, Democrat, Illinois, speaks during a news conference about the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act on Capitol Hill in Washington on February 26, 2020. Emmett Till, pictured at right, was a 14-year-old African-American who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955 after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. Legislation that would make lynching a federal hate crime in the United States is expected to be signed into law next week by President Joe Biden. That was the article, What's Behind Federal Anti-Lynching Legislation? It was written by Corey Williams and Gary Fields and appeared at the Associated Press's AP.com website on March 15th, 2022. Next on the African American Hour is an essay from the February 14th edition of Time Magazine. It's titled The Way Home by Imani Perry. It is subtitled I Search for Answers About My Enslaved Ancestors. What I Found Was More Questions. Everything I have learned about my one known ancestor from Maryland comes from a pair of census reports, and the clarity they failed to offer is a lesson in itself. Some years ago, I began to look at them every so often. One is from 1870, the other from 1880. I'm always hoping to discover something I missed about myself, about my past. Every gaze is a moment of wonder and frustration. There she is, twice. In 1870, she is Easter Lowe, born in Maryland in 1769, 101 years old, black. In 1880, she is Esther Watkins, born in Georgia in 1789, 91 years old, widowed, black. Both improbable and extraordinary. In rare, lighter moments, it makes me think of Mark Twain's humorous story about George Washington's mammy, Joyce Heth, who in newspaper report after newspaper report kept getting older until her age rivaled Methuselah's, as we say it. Whereas Twain noted a sentimentalism toward the old plantation darky that verged on the ridiculous, my own ancestor's imprecision is a bitter wound. 
And I have some awe, too, at what must have been a daunting attempt to name her age. How to place her in history, someone speculated. Most of the time, I feel a combination of reverence and sadness. It is unlikely I will ever know what happened or when exactly she was born. I can guess. The ages are probably wrong, but could be right, or at least one of them anyway. There were some enslaved people who lived to extraordinarily old ages. Perhaps she was sold from Maryland down the river. Maybe from a man named Lowe to a man named Watkins who wanted to settle the Georgia frontier. And later, as Mississippi was carved out of Georgia and Alabama out of Mississippi, she, a woman who at least by one account was born before the nation was a nation, was still living an elderly freed woman. Even if I doubt her age, there is the ancestry DNA evidence that says I descended from people who lived in early 18th century Virginia. Inexact borders aside, what holds is this. We came before America was America. This woman who bore the name either of my favorite biblical queen or my favorite holiday was here, not as an accomplice to the settler colony, but as the victim of its displacement and captivity. She was a witness to the very exclusions that laid the foundation for the creation of a national identity. It is a remarkable status. I wanted to travel to Maryland to see something about my ancestral beginnings, but I had no idea where to go. I ultimately chose to go to Annapolis, the capital. It is a precious town, one that is self-consciously old like it is manicured in that way. I wasn't sure exactly what I was looking for there at first. I just went. You'd be hard-pressed to find a deep Southerner who would ever call Maryland or Washington, D.C. the South. Even the storied history of enslaved people from Maryland doesn't keep it from seeming Northern. Not Althea Browning Tanner, an enslaved woman who sold vegetables directly outside the White House. Not even Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman, heroes of history who were both held captive in Maryland. I still am reticent to call the Mid-Atlantic South the South. And yet I have learned in the course of my travels that there are Souths, plural as much as singular, despite my deep South bias. I know that while the South is a determined thing, it is also a shifting and varied one. Redeclared many times as a fact, it echoes far beyond its moving borders. There was a particular place I had learned about as I was digging around in stories of Maryland, and I wanted to get to it in order to figure out what I was looking for here. I'd read that there was a pub where founding fathers used to drink, carouse, and sell black people. And it is still open. My phone GPS went topsy-turvy for a little bit, but eventually I found the tavern. I stepped inside, hoping to feel something mystical. Nothing. It was dimly lit and fairly inglorious. I sat awkwardly in a black-painted wood chair, alone and facing a young family with a little girl in a high chair with the bar behind me. I ate fish fried in a thick batter. The pocket of heat under the skin was tongue-burning, but increased the sweetness of the flesh. I drank cranberry juice with ice cubes too large to chew. I looked at the fixtures. I looked at the floor. It was disorientingly dark. As historians of slavery have noted, our images of auction blocks are more theatrical than the reality often was. Regular places were sites of the trade and people. The everydayness of disaster was a feature of slave society. 
we might be inclined to look for somewhere to place a memorial or an altar to the past that we can treat as particularly hallowed ground. But the truth is, this mundane place where I was served cranberry juice and fish by a young white man with flopping brown hair and an eager smile is exactly where my foreparents might have been wrenched away from everything they loved. Matter of fact, like that, when I went outside again, the sunlight felt like it was about to blind me. Next, I decided I'd visit two historic museum homes of which Annapolis boasts. The first was under construction. I made it to the second just in time for a docent-led tour. It began inauspiciously. The guide was lovely, but the moment the phrase, those nasty Indians tried to fight us and we had to fight back came out of her mouth, chill bumps raised on my forearms. Well, I thought, this might be some good material. Not a moment later, a manager ran up to me. I heard you're working on a book. I hadn't intended to be treated as though I was there on an official visit, but I accepted her graciousness. She told me that I could take a hard hat tour of the building that was under construction and gave me her card, which I promptly lost. And then she followed up explaining, we are trying to tell the history more thoroughly. That house is where we found artifacts that relate to the history of enslaved people in Maryland. Her words were offered gingerly and with sensitivity. I didn't inquire further. I wasn't interested in making an indictment or issuing praise. I was just trying to see how the back then is inside the now. We walked through rooms restored with great detail. Historic preservation is a painstaking business, especially when it comes to paint colors and fabrics. It is a matter of samples and formulas, mailing them back and forth and cross-referencing up the wazoo and things being not quite right until they are iterated to perfection. Unexpectedly, the docent turned and looked at me wide-eyed. I hate to tell you, but I have to talk about, and she whispered the word, slavery. I shrugged. Well, yes, she said, it did happen. Yes, it did, I replied. My companions on the tour were a lovely couple, older and white. They were deeply interested in history and preservation and traveled frequently to experience both. The woman, a Kentuckian with a thin gray bowl haircut and a smile so earnest it looked like it belonged on a 12-year-old, struggled a bit. These old homes are hard to move about in if you have a physical disability. Before we made it to the basement, my bowl-cut companion needed to sit. The docent led her and her husband to the garden. I walked down a set of stairs and joined in on another tour. A young white couple recently graduated from Georgetown University was listening. They were smartly but casually dressed with studiously respectful expressions on their faces. Standing in the kitchen, this docent told us that the enslaved woman in charge of the cooking slept there on the floor in front of the hearth. It was freezing cold in the winter and sweltering in the summer. On a kitchen table which, compared to the elaborately set dining table upstairs, was rough-hewn, a feast awaited delivery. I wondered, who brought upstairs the sumptuous meals replicated in plastic? Then the guide said something that stuck in my craw. Slave cooks had to possess a great deal of knowledge. They had to understand science and math even though they were illiterate. They had to keep track of proportion, the distribution of heat, and the ingredients to every meal they made. The docent pointed to a device, gleaming metal on a pulley, that was used to turn meat in order for it to be fully cooked. Though it aided the task, cooking still required rapt attention. 
Maybe because I have spent my entire adult life studying and researching with the control and aid of books, archives, and computers, the colonization of this black woman's mind hit me hard. I have long known that each purchase of a slave was an investment. The feeding and clothing of one was as well. The task was to keep them alive enough to work and procreate and cheap enough to yield the highest profit margin. Also, they were supposed to be abused enough to terrorize them out of retaliation. It has often been noted that slaves were denied knowledge as a way to keep them docile. But some, like the builders, the blacksmiths, the plantation botanists, and the cooks, were required to hold vast knowledge and study it in their minds and memory because pen and paper were denied. The life task of the enslaved person was to stay alive and, where possible, love and find some joy. I imagine this cook lying on this intact ground, shivering, sweltering, alone and knowing. An archive in her head. Her name left on no ledger, no wall in this house. There is no recording of the precise color of her flesh or apron. I imagine her smacked for an error or patronizingly praised and aching. Eventually arthritic, smiled at for making the loveliest cakes until, like her birth, her death came and went without public notice. Tears welled up in my eyes, and I am somewhat embarrassed to say I felt a momentary relief that if my ancestor, Easter or Esther, worked here, I didn't know it. I wonder if Easter or Esther looked at the ships as Frederick Douglass did longingly. I wonder if she dreamed of boarding one and finding another place to be or returning to her mother's home. Easter Lowe, or Esther Watkins, is my ancestor and my muse. I set her alongside the documented stories of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Home is such a jealously guarded concept in my life, so specific. I don't know how it was in hers. Did slavery make home always somewhere else? In Barracoon, Zora Neale Hurston made clear that home for the last Africans brought here on slave ships was different than it was for African Americans for whom this was the only place they knew. Home was vexed, but here. For the Africans, it remained out there. Without knowing how close or how far Africa was in Easter's life, my thoughts could not be convincingly speculative. When it comes to memory and slavery, there are people who center their concern on the gaps and absences. They dwell on the grief of silences. And there are people who every day are fitting puzzle pieces together to find as much truth and detail as possible. Both are essential. We, descendants of the incomplete puzzle, know a good deal about dwelling in rough negotiated spaces, trapping places where intimacy existed despite the fact that law did not recognize its sanctity. Places where life and death and woundedness and love all persisted. But did our ancestors truly feel at home? Do we? Was home some effect on the ether, hard to hold, or a future perfect tension imagined as part of some freedom to come? This word that I hold in my mouth, ever and always meaning the state where I was born, home is not something I am sure had meaning before freedom. There are two photographs that go along with this article. The first shows about a dozen black women, all dressed in white long dresses, some with their heads wrapped up in turbans. They're looking at a camera. The caption reads, Artist Billy Carter Rankin's treatment of a 1920s photograph from the Library of Congress.
The next photograph shows a picture of an old black lady with gray hair sitting on a rocking chair on a porch. The caption simply reads, a photo from the 1930s was captioned old slave. The woman went unnamed. That was the essay, The Way Home. I searched for answers about my enslaved ancestors. What I found were more questions. It appeared in the February 14th edition of Time magazine. The last reading for today's program is an obituary from the New York Times and its nytimes.com website. The title of the obituary is Dennis Cunningham, Civil Rights Lawyer for Varied Causes, Dies at 86. It was written by Sam Roberts and was originally published March 6, 2022. The subtitle to this obituary is He successfully represented the Black Panthers, environmentalists who accused the government of conspiracy, and Attica prison inmates. Dennis Cunningham, a civil rights lawyer who successfully sued the government on behalf of the Black Panthers, rebellious Attica prison inmates, and fervent environmentalists who claimed they were victims of official misconduct, died on Saturday at his son's home in Los Angeles. He was 86. The cause was cancer, his daughter Bernadine Mellis said. Mr. Cunningham was not as well known as some of his colleagues, but he represented a wide range of protesters after being inspired by the 1963 Civil Rights March on Washington. The engine of my enlightenment, he called it, and attending law school at night in the 1960s. He practiced in Chicago, where he was a founder of the storefront People's Law Office. In upstate New York, where a civil suit stemming from the 1971 prison riot at the Attica Correctional Facility was finally settled in 2001, and in San Francisco, where he moved in the early 1980s to be closer to his children. Mr. Cunningham joined the team of lawyers who sued the authorities after a police raid on a Chicago apartment in which Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, leaders of the Black Panther Party in Illinois, were shot to death in 1969. Within hours of the police shooting, Mr. Cunningham called Gerald B. Lefcourt, capital L-E-F, C-O-U-R-T, a fellow fledgling civil liberties lawyer in New York for advice. Mr. Lefcourt recommended that Mr. Cunningham immediately enlist a forensic expert to inspect the apartment. The first step in establishing a chain of evidence that helped prove their allegation that the raid was the result of a government conspiracy to murder Mr. Hampton. After an 18-month trial, the suit was finally settled for $1.85 million on behalf of the survivors and the families of the two victims in 1982. It was all about Dennis's commitment, which is what you want in a lawyer who's trying to do the right thing, Mr. Lefcourt said in a phone interview. Dennis led that fight for years. Mr. Cunningham, Michael Deutsch, Elizabeth Fink, and Joseph Heath represented 62 inmates indicted in the aftermath of the Attica riot. Eight were convicted. In 1974, the lawyers filed a civil suit on behalf of the Attica Brothers Legal Defense Fund, which was settled for $12 million, including legal fees a quarter century later. In 2002, Mr. Cunningham helped persuade a jury in California to award $4.4 million to two Earth-first environmentalists who contended that their rights had been violated by the local and federal officers who arrested them. The authorities said the environmentalists, 
Daryl Cherney and Judy Berry, were on their way to promote demonstrations against the logging of ancient redwood trees in 1990 when a pipe bomb in their car exploded. Miss Berry's pelvis was crushed by the blast and Mr. Cherney was slightly wounded. The authorities said the bomb had accidentally detonated while the pair were transporting it to use for eco-terrorism. Supporters of Mr. Cherney and Miss Berry said the timber industry or the government had planted the bomb. Criminal charges were eventually dropped for lack of evidence. After 17 days of deliberations, a federal jury in a civil trial affirmed the plaintiff's contention that the FBI and the Oakland police had violated their civil rights and First Amendment rights by defaming the pair. The car bomb case became the subject of a documentary film, The Forest for the Trees, 2005, directed by Mr. Cunningham's daughter, Bernadine Mellis. Mr. Cunningham acknowledged that as lawyers, we have it drilled into us that we owe a duty of representation to each client. The rest of the world be damned. But he was quoted in the book Representing Radicals, 2021, as saying that many of the cases he took on behalf of politically motivated defendants had to be approached differently. In such cases, he said, his obligation is to take care not to undermine the values or the goals of the client's activism. Dennis Dixon Cunningham was born on January 2, 1936, in Glencoe, Illinois, to Robert M. Cunningham, Jr., an author, editor, and health care policy consultant, and Deborah Libby Cunningham, a homemaker. When he was 15, he entered the University of Chicago under a Ford Foundation program for students who had completed two years of high school. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in 1955, he performed in theater companies, including the Second City, where he met and married Mona Mellis. Their marriage ended in divorce. Besides his daughter, Bernadine, he is survived by his son, Joseph Mellis, his daughters, Delia Mellis and Miranda Mellis, three grandchildren, his brother, Rob, and his partner, Mary Ann Walcott. Mr. Cunningham was in his late 20s when, inspired by the civil rights movement, he earned a law degree at night from Loyola University in Chicago in 1967. He was admitted to the bar just in time to defend demonstrators arrested at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. With the help of colleagues from the National Lawyers Guild, he helped found the People's Law Office in a converted sausage store to assist protesters facing charges for what they viewed as their efforts to bring about social and political change. We had boldly decided to call ourselves the People's Law Office, informally at least, and our purpose was easily encapsulated in the obligation to be worthy of that name, Mr. Cunningham recalled. He later represented the groups opposed to apartheid and to dictatorships in Central America and others that favored more support for the homeless and the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power or ACT UP. After settling in San Francisco, he worked with another lawyer, Ben Rosenfeld on the Barry case and other litigation. There's one photograph that goes along with this obituary. It shows Mr. Cunningham wearing a dark suit, a white shirt, and a dark tie. He has a gray beard, gray hair, and brown glasses. Mr. Cunningham is standing outside an office building. The caption reads, Dennis Cunningham in 2012. And representing politically motivated clients, he said, his obligation was to take care not to undermine the values or the goals of the client's activism.
That was an obituary from the New York Times titled, Dennis Cunningham, Civil Rights Lawyer for Varied Causes, Dies at 86. It appeared in the New York Times, nytimes.com website on March 6, 2022, and was written by Sam Roberts. That's all the time we have for this edition of the African American Hour. Rose Marie will be back next week. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.